0: Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm here with Elaine Murta and Antonio Calderon uh, from the University of Limerick in Ireland, um, and we're going to discuss the article titled Online Teaching and Learning in Physical Education, Teacher Education, a Mixed Studies Review of Literature. Um, this article was recently published with Dylan Scanlon and Anne McPhail uh, in the European Physical Education Review. Um, you can find, as always, the full citation of this article in the notes, um, so to both of you. Welcome, Antonio. Welcome back. Uh, and thanks for coming on. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having us. Yeah.
0: So, in the article, you start off by mentioning the influence of obviously the pandemic on digital education. I'm wondering if you can start off by telling us kind of the background of where this study came from.
2: Sure. Um, the idea for the study um, started in March 2020, uh, which you'll recognize the date was when it was announced in Ireland anyway that all our teaching and learning had to go online. So I went looking for reviews to help guide our practice in the move to online learning. And there wasn't one for Pete specifically. So I reached out to my colleagues in our sports pedagogy research group. And so a uh, uh, few of us were very interested in pursuing it further. But Antonio um, and some of the colleagues have a background in researching digital technology, so maybe Antonio yeah. can
1: that. Yeah, it, it was definitely that was a trigger. That was a really good, the trigger there to, to this to this piece of research. But we were uh, within the sport pedagogy group in in. in the university of limerick we have an interest and we are kind of developing a research area with a focus on digital technology for teaching and learning with a particular focusing in PE, so physical education teacher education programs and we had that work that that some work done before in terms of blended learning and and also so that was kind of a continuation and, and even though the pandemic definitely was a trigger but then there was a previous interest there. And and also, you know, we were kind of informed too by, that was 2020, and there are two relevant papers there that informed and kind of prompted us to continue in this in this line, which was the Cross, Jennifer Cross and colleagues in 2020, and also Goris 2022, that they were in the same area. So we were just also informed and, and motivated by those pieces of research too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So can you shed light on the kind of the history of online teaching and learning specifically in Pete? You said that there wasn't a lot in there. Um, what What was kind of believed and how was digital technology actually, um, how has it played out over the last couple of years?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say that one because, you know, I think this is one of my favorite Basis of writing a, a paper. It's just when you need to lo- look the literature and you need to see what is there, just to frame your introduction, just to build your case. And normally what I normally tend to do is just to go in really bad to find the really, really old stuff in relation to to the topic. I love doing that myself. And and it's even fantastic when you find when you find something which is relevant to you and it's coming you know say from the 1950s from the 1950s yeah. from the and, and I noticed
0: you had that as your first quote I looked at the the line and it was a very relevant it could have been written like 10 years ago and it was a 1965 citation so awesome
1: Yeah in this one and, and then that, that was that wasn't in in, in Pete, but as you say it was it was really relevant but you know coming back to you know in the PEAT area I think it was really interesting to find uh a special issue actually in quest in nineteen ninety seven and and I'm happy to share that link if you like but it was a whole special issue on distance learning in physical education teacher education and and I, and, then, and 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 using that terminology distance learning because that was the terminology that I would use before and and but, you know, obviously in terms of your question and, and how the technology played out, I think obviously it, it, it's been massive, you know. It's, for me, in coming back to that really old literature, it was really fascinating to hear, you know, how 15 years ago, distance learning was kind of happening by, you know, us imagine teacher educators sending the greeting papers and doing, you know, all past correspondence to data students. So that was the way it worked. And so obviously the technologies have in changed, are improving, are changing, progressing, like really, really massively rapid. But, you know, in looking at the pedagogies, that didn't change too much. because one of those papers from the 1990s, they were using, you know, homepage websites and they were using those kind of as a base just a resource center just to share with the students whatever they wanted to share it, a bulletin board or assignments or links to websites whatever so that was what was used before and even coming back to one of those papers that was before actually Stephen Silverman in 1997 which I think is a really really relevant paper too and and I think I have this do I have this paper here let me check uh, they were actually, well, I, I don't have the paper now in my screen, but he was just telling in terms of that the main challenge for teacher education and teach educators in just a matter of uh, digital skills. So all of those uh, kind of discussion points back 30 years ago are still relevant today because they were also kind of talking in terms of the, you know, the, the difficulties, for accessing to digital technology and and equity and inequalities in that sense, which is really relevant even today. So I, I suppose that that was really interesting to see. But then, you know, before we used to have the home page and now we have the virtual learning systems and and those in a way are better because time can kind of facilitate an online space for interaction with your students. And I think that's really important. But at the same time, they also bring some negatives too. So in terms of, so for example, the whole culture of accountability and surveillance. So, you know, that's true. Technology is kind of progressing and and being better, I suppose, every time. But also it's not that good. Everything that it's
0: kind of shines. So we need to look at
1: also the, the, the negative.
0: Super yeah. yeah, and I think it's interesting because if this paper was published in 2019 and you read this paper and you would just look at like, oh, that's online PE and like, well, we don't do that, but it's interesting to learn about and this is blended learning and we don't really do that. We kind of do. Versus reading this paper now, every single PE professor has taught online. Every single PEAT professor out there has done some sort of blended learning. And so all of those now reading back 1997 Silverman's like recommendations, like this is how you do it. And you're like, oh man, like these do really connect and they do, you have such a more invested, um, invested way of reading a paper like this and to look back at the history because for a lot of us, it was traumatizing, you know, and. For you know there was there are pieces here about you know teaching the blank screens or like not having that interaction, but also the benefit of like being able to teach from wherever and uh, how, giving access to people who may not be literally on your mm-hmm. campus so I think it's I think it's really interesting the way that this is read now versus how it would would have been read three years ago um, but um, so I'm wondering what what was the actual focus of the literature review? What did you What did you focus on?
1: So yeah, basically we we, we said something already, but we were kind of just trying to see what was already there in terms of the research really published, and I mentioned a couple of pieces that were really relevant for us. But I suppose given that there wasn't too much, because those previous reviews from from Cross and colleagues and and the other piece of paper, the other piece of research, uh, they were not specifically focused on on online pedagogies. They were just not focused on on the use of digital technology for teaching and learning. And I think that's something that we may uh, consider differently. It's just the use of technology as part of your face-to-face or in-person teaching and learning, or just to, you know, the, the whole notion of online teaching and learning so given that there was not a lot out there so we tend to focus on i suppose basic questions that were kind of for for the four of us interesting to to address and that was why we went by four research questions and then the first one if i may i, I would i would read the four of them so it's clear for for people what we we intended there so the first one was in relation to to find out what pedagogies and technologies are being used for online teaching and learning in PEAT in particular. And then the second one, which I think was a really important one for us too, it was just looking at the, the principles underpinning the development and the delivery of PET modules and programs through through different online means. And then we have two more questions. The third was in relation to key learnings from uh, teacher educators and preservice teachers. And the last one was in relation to okay, let, look, given that there's not so much there, can, can we kind of set a research agenda in terms of what would be the priorities based on on our findings? So those four were the the, the main research questions that they wanted to to address in in this in this review.
0: Okay, and so before we go into the methods. Um, a term you used in the title is mixed studies review. Can you just explain to the to the listeners what is a mixed studies review?
2: Sure. So in a mixed studies review, various study designs are eligible. So a study reporting qualitative data, quantitative data, or a mix of both, sometimes called mixed methods, um, can be included in a mixed studies review. So, and this is the first time I had embarked on a mixed studies review. I've, I've done lots of systematic reviews of quantitative data. I've done several qualitative synthesis of, you know, qualitative studies. This is the first time we tried this new approach. And I suppose the idea was that separating, you know, the quantitative studies and qualitative um, studies all the time doesn't give you the full picture of, you know, what's going on in an area. At some point for a topic like this, it just doesn't make sense. So we wanted to get the the strength of both if you like.
0: Yeah, and so can you explain what you did in the study, kind of the methods?
2: Yeah, yeah, there's a great um, guide for this um, by a group led by Clue. And they have a toolkit, it's a wiki, that's online for mixed studies reviews There's lots of resources for anyone thinking of learning a little bit more about this or even doing one of these mixed studies reviews themselves. Um, But there's eight steps involved. Um, So you start, number one, by formulating your research question, and Antonio has described those already. The second step is to define the eligibility criteria for your review, and we've outlined those in table one of our paper. And then step three is to define the scope of the sources of of information. So that's deciding what databases you want to search, which ones are going to be most relevant to your topic. Then the fourth step is to identify the potentially relevant study through the searches that you undertake. Step five then is to select your studies and often you'll do that with, we did it with two authors independently. And um, then number six is to appraise the quality of the studies. So we use the mixed methods appraisal tool for this, the M-MAT, which is looking at the, the methodog- methodological quality that you're, that you're appraising there. Then step seven is to extract the data. And we used, a, we developed our own Excel sheet and piloted this to make sure we were um, charting the data that we needed. And then finally, you synthesize the data. So for our um, mixed studies review, the approach that we took bearing in mind that we have some studies with quantitative data, some studies with qualitative data, and then some with both. So we adopted what's called a database convergence synthesis design. So that's a bit of a mouthful. What it means is that the integration of the qual and the quant occurs at the level of the extracted data and anything that was quantitative was converted into textual descriptions. So all the data then became qualitative from that point onwards.
0: So uh, can I follow up on the the quality assessment? Um, did you have a hard time mm-hmm. uh, agreeing what what considered like what was considered quality between the researchers? Can you? Because I've I've more and more kind mm-hmm. of been bogged down on this and especially with really big reviews like 100 200 Mm -hmm. 300 articles in a review to how to do that quality assessment was it did you feel like it took a lot of time or was there was there disagreement between reviewers on what was considered quality um i don't know too
2: many disagreements, because two, uh, two researchers did it independently, and then they compared and discussed to reach consensus. With the particular tool that we used, there are set questions for um, by study type, so if you've got a qualitative study versus you've got a randomised controlled trial, for example. We found that, interestingly, we found that the qualitative studies, um, we were able to appraise them, they did provide the information, but for a lot of the quantitative ones, if you look at our, our, our tables that reports it, often we have can't tell, there just wasn't enough information reported mm-hmm. for us to make a judgment. That was difficult. And then you don't, you're don't you just basing it on what was reported in the paper. You no, know, perhaps they did do this, but they just haven't, haven't said it. Um, but, yeah, in, in terms of your question about if you've got an awful lot of studies and trying to appraise them in this way... Yes, I agree, it, it, it can be difficult. Um, the the tools that we used seemed to set out the questions really, really clearly and set criteria. So that particular one um, was quite
0: user-friendly. Yeah. Antonio? Yeah,
1: and, and, I, and I have to say, just thinking back about that process, I think that was really, really rich. I think it was really interesting because it's a way that you really Get deep into the papers that you found that you have included and uh, as part of your review. and that that tool that we use, the critical operation tool, Anthony it, it is it was quite quite useful because it is no way too complicated. It provides you with five single prompts. So for example, for the qualitative studies, the first question that you need to answer is that, yeah, for example, is the qualitative approach, appropriate to answer to that research questions or are the data collection methods adequate to address research questions. So there is a level of interpretation yeah. there yeah. in terms of does it really or not? So that was the, 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 the discussion in between colleagues and, and we had to, to, to have a few then obviously, but you know, the pros were, were, were useful just trying to, to put you on task to, to whether or not you are doing the right thing or not.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so mm-hmm. let me let me jump into the findings of your article and I'm wondering if you can give us an overview of the kind of overall characteristics of the studies on online teaching and learning in PEAT uh, that you found and maybe talk about what study or what types of studies did your research uncover?
1: Yeah absolutely and um, and you know there's one aspect that we should call to attention to for people just in case you are interested is that all these processes that we are talking about are there published as part of the paper as as, as complementary resources so all our critical operational uh decisions they were there so if people people's interested in going back and and finding out more in terms of those these processes they they are they are also uh and but then in looking at the the papers the the included papers we we had we had for, for do it, we we have 14. And you know, papers from 2013 to 2020, papers with kind of reported or clear theoretical framework and that in a way informed the pedagogical approach that is described in, in the paper. Uh, we also found some papers, most of them actually, most of 50% of the papers were coming from from research that were being done in in the in the states uh, in the U.S. So, but also, but n- not many of them papers from from Ireland, from Indonesia, from Korea, from Greece, from Canada, and Egypt. So that is actually one of the limitations that that we mentioned before. That most of the papers that we included, based based on our criteria, were coming from 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 the state, but obviously that that's only, that that was our reality and and but then also it was a whole variety in terms of uh, the research designs that we found and you know we we found we included papers experimental randomized and experimental non-randomized uh, but also case studies uh, collaborative self-studies as well and and other qualitative approaches so those are kind of the summary of, of the research designs of, of the papers we, we found and included. And obviously being a, a lead review focused on, on PE teacher education. So the participants in most of them were presently teachers and, and PE teachers, uh, PE teacher educators. And and the the main way in which the data was gathered was obviously it, it would depend on of the type of, of research design but mainly online surveys focus groups semi-structured interviews diaries signals and and reflective journals so that that was kind of in a an nutshell the, the type of research uh, the type of studies that we included in, in, in our in our review yeah. Yeah.
2: and we had a few discussions about the time frame so our search was mm-hmm. from 2010 to 2020 and um, we did initially think about going further back um, and opening up a little bit more. Um, but we decided that, you know, that time from 2010 to 2020, there was a lot of change in digital technologies. And that's what we were, we were using as we were coming into all the online, you know, pr- push to online learning during um, the pandemic. So our findings do reflect that that decade, if yeah. you like.
0: And and it's interesting, you, you talked about the U.S.-based, um, like, more than, or 50% of your studies were from the U.S., and this this was the same as one of the last reviews that uh, I did a podcast on about, um, at, like, out-of-school uh, physical activity, and it was, like, 70-80% were from the U.S., and so I, I think, you know, the U.S. has a lot of researchers, has a lot of research coming out of it, right, but it would be... I mean, it's, it's skewed, right? It's definitely skewed of what, you know, if you look at Germany or something, the German education system isn't the same as the U.S. education system. Even, like, even in the U.S., if you're doing PE education, we have two-year programs, essentially. You get a four-year degree, but two years is spent in general education. Whereas if you go to Finland, you're spending five years in teacher education for PE, and then you get a master's degree with it so they're so different and we would we would have a lot more concern or commentary if 70% of your research studies came from China right and it was like 70% of research was from China this is a limitation but it's like well the chinese education system is completely different than than what you would be teaching in in the US or in in Ireland so i think these reviews are really interesting because based on where that research, and traditionally, like in most of my reviews, I'd say 80% is UK, US. And mm-hmm. like, I don't, I don't know. I, I think that was a really good point that you brought up because I don't think we, we discussed that enough.
1: And then I suppose with, with the, that, I think that is why it's so important to, to disseminate the research in you know in, in podcasts as we are doing right here with you, because that may you know attract an international o- audience in mm-hmm. terms of oh look that's interesting. so we may do the same thing because the, the potential there in the field is just it's just massive in terms of what we found and what really could be done and that would be a way to kind of you know expand the field in just looking at the different contexts because as you said Risto. You know the, the the difference is we are talking about teeth but the systems are really different yeah. too yeah. and within countries, but also uh, maybe we can we can go back to this discussion in terms of what we understand by online teaching and learning too mm-hmm. and 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 that is something that so that there won't be enough so it will be really interesting to hear from from other colleagues experiences and and contexts uh in terms of what they do and i think this is a really interesting way to to make some progress in
0: the field, maybe. Or even having Mm -hmm. Spanish language or Portuguese language uh, articles included. And I think that's that's always tough, right? Because you have to bring a, Mm -hmm. not only one Spanish speaking scholar to look at Spanish language articles, you have to bring two because two people have to agree on that. And then, but that could be a really great way to get a wider scope you Bring two Portuguese scholars, two mm-hmm. Spanish scholars, two scholars who can, you know, read English. And then I think that would be a wider, wider scope in that way for sure. So that's for your next project. Yeah. I, I,
2: <laughs> you know, I agree. Like by so many reviews, language is restricted to English, and that you're automatically excluding this huge body of knowledge.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's a limitation. For sure,
0: absolutely. Yeah. Which is a limitation, and, we, and when
2: in, I say we, we need to we need to do more and plan better yeah. to be able to include more languages in our in our review. Yeah.
0: But it's a limitation on almost every single review that's published in English speaking journals or English language circles mm-hmm. journals. Um, so going back to your results, you found you didn't find a lot of detail regarding the principles establishing the development and delivery of online PEAK courses, as well as the pedagogical approaches. So with that said, can you share uh, with us the approaches that you were able to find?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, again, what, what we wanted to find out in, in our research is that to what extent the research on that is being shared on Aligned Teaching and Learning in PEAK is kind of built or informed by any theory or theoretical framework or model that they've, you know, been using just to, to build the their different pedagogical approaches. So, and it was interesting to see that only half of the papers included some kind of model or theoretical framework in which that, that they used to to build their their own their own pedagogical digital approach. And what we found there, that the papers that just they reported uh, some kind of models or or theories uh, to 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 be used. They were kind of more from more general ones, like for example, using socio-constructivism uh, as the main kind of umbrella theory in which you know to build the, the different pedagogical approaches. And but we also found some 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 more specifics such as, for example, and we didn't know that, I wasn't aware that, but there, there is a lot there in terms of uh, models to be used, especially to guide you in, in the design of, of your approach. And so, for example, the science learning activities modules, which is the SLAM and, or the 3C models, they were kind of, they were used in, in a couple of papers there. And just for people to, to have an idea, so for example, the SLAM module, uh, and let me go back to my notes here because it, it is quite quite a specific. And so, for example, yeah, here. So I think these frameworks are are kind of really interesting because they they give you some information. They guide you in terms of designing your thing. And sometimes that, that is really interesting. In, in particular, this one they're giving you the information in terms of context, in terms of different technologies, in terms of different pedagogies that you can use. So, for example, in terms of context, and they give you some some features in terms of it is, is it, it is a context, is a formal context, it is a non-formal context. Uh, are, are you planning individual or collaborative learning? Uh, are you using uh, an open or a closed learning environment so they are they are giving you some really specific prompts which are really interesting in terms of okay that's interesting so given that our form that our contact is formal or something so we may think in terms of using one kind of activity or another one so for example in terms of technology they they this model gives you four different prompts three different prompts so it's are you thinking in synchronous activities or asynchronous? Or is this is going to be a virtual or physical interaction? Are you going to be using sing, a single platform or VLE or a multi platform? And um, in, in terms of the pedagogy, they give you some, some prompts to think about. Like, for example, uh, uh, are you thinking in terms of the, the type of assessment that you are thinking centralized on R or open assessment? Or are you going to use? Uh, what type of activities are you going to use? Are more uh, a teacher or a student center? So I think those models, yes, should be there in the designing process somehow. And you know what? They didn't have to be really, really specific and published ones because in some of the papers that we found and and included in our review, it, they were just using you know the, the student inputs just just to create their the, their own their own approach which Mm -hmm. i think it has to be something there just to prompt you in terms of okay what do we want to do what is ideal we do what is i don't know effective for our context or or something so it must be something that that, that's what we thought yeah Yeah. Uh,
0: so i'd like to get a little bit more in depth into the four main findings of the research Um, i'm wondering if you can start up by explaining how digital education can promote different types of learning that enhance the pre, uh, pre-service teachers' ownership of their learning experiences.
2: Yeah, so that was one, one of the uh, the themes relating to our research question around the key learning from the experiences of the faculty and the pre-service teachers. And so that 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 question around ownership of the learning experiences, what we generally found was that the online modes of teaching and learning facilitated this shift to to independent learning. And um, studies reported several example, examples, I might give a few, and um, in one they reported that when students were tasked to create their own online PE units and this encouraged comfort in the online setting and a greater sense of ownership. Um, another study felt that the course structure and the online components allowed the pre-service teachers to self-reflect and self-evaluate and in another they used student facilitators that was the term they used and these student facilitators encouraged students to assume some ownership of online discussions and that then reduced the instructor dependence so it seems that for for some students this online learning will promote ownership but the caveat is that it may suit particular students who have a preference for this more independent and self-paced style of working.
0: Yeah, and there's 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 always that. All of us have taught online <laughs> and some of them are like, hey, I love this. Can you offer more of these courses? And others are screaming to get out as soon as possible so um i'm wondering if you can talk about the student-centered approaches that were used in in the different studies that you found how these teaching strategies improved online teaching and learning and um, maybe even share a few examples of the tools or approaches you found in the literature Mm -hmm. yeah
2: the approaches varied from study to study so i'll I'll give you a few examples of these student-centered approaches And we found some studies using student mentors and student facilitators, both for peer support, but also for some of the teaching. Um, Small group activity discussions were used, student debates were used, some problem-based learning activities were used. Um, But all all of those are where the students are actively involved in their learning. Um, there was one study that made quite some strong recommendations around um, how you involve students and, and the student-centred approach and it was particularly around small group activity discussions rather than the whole group and I think they made some, some um, very relevant points around that for when you're online that the small group format can provide a more emotionally based environment and um, but also online a small group format will oblige students to take more responsibility they'll have to get involved have to discuss and they might have to facilitate their own feedback for example for example and that in this particular study it seemed to be something that was very important for the online elements to work anyway
0: yeah so i found the opposing findings interesting uh regarding the teacher-student relationship comparing online and face-to-face education Um, can you expand on that
1: yeah, absolutely. I think the previous comment from Elaine. I think that, that that's really interesting too. But then, you know, you're talking about teacher-student relationship, comparing online and, and face-to-face education. And and I, you know, some of the thoughts that come to my own mind in terms of when we are talking about online and face-to-face education, it's just. I think I think we will all agree that this is dominant assumption and which is part of the the, the general discourse when we are talking in terms in relation to online or face-to-face is that online is always worse than face-to-face so if you as anyone else you know do you you kind of even though there are different interests for people and students oh it's just kind of part of our own biases and understanding Mm -hmm. that online is going to be always
0: worse for
1: sure and i think that's really interesting because well what kind of online, what is your understanding? What type of experiences you had online and what type of face-to-face as well? So what is an ideal face-to-face or in-person on-campus experience? And and how is an ideal, you know, online type of experience, you from home, it just versus the, 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 dual, the, the binary, are you on campus or you are, uh, uh, and whatever you are at home or in the library or whatever. So I think it's something to consider because what we've been doing generally is just in the online environment, what we're just trying to do, is just to kind of replicating what we do in on on, the physical classroom, right? So we're using uh, uh, whatever the software is just to deliver our content and then we record the content and then we share the content with the students. And then, but you know, I think it's really important that we can, that we discuss in terms of online, what, what do we mean by online uh, teaching and learning experiences, and, but in person. And, and towards then they promote uh, teacher-student relationship, which is actually, I think it is really important in terms of ourselves as teacher educators creating, designing resources and and learning experiences, which really promote teacher-student relationship but also a student and a student so I think that, that that's something that I wanted to share because we don't necessarily have to take for granted that one is better than the other it could be the other way around and and it will depend of, of a number of, of of things and and you know another finding that we found there it's just the multiple meanings for for technology and for people and this is what we are kind of talking about you know, Think about the VLE that you are using in your university, whatever the name is, whatever whatever the VLE is. So every one of us are using that VLE differently, right? Yeah. So some of you are using the VLE like, you know, just to share resources, just to use a folder, to to share with your students, whatever, but other colleagues are using in a more dynamic way just to create those spaces or for a student and teacher interaction. And I think that that's really important too. So even so we are all everyone is talking about online teaching and learning, but I think it would be really interesting to find out what do we mean by online teaching and learning and what is you know those those meaningful approaches. I think that's like a really interesting conversation that hopefully papers like this this one will kind of provoke and, and trigger. Yeah.
0: yeah.
2: Yeah, and there were so many different types of online in our paper. There were some that were synchronous, you know, teaching like we are on this call now. And some was asynchronous, some with discussions. So you can't make sweeping statements about everything. Um, and one thing we didn't we didn't write about, I was just thinking about it there when Antonio was talking, is, you know, when, when people compare, you know, online versus in-person on campus, you know, which is better, the, the, the teacher and the students play such a role in how that's going to work out. So like that element is so important as well. And that can be very hard to capture in the
0: research. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about a really bad lecture and with a person never speaking a single word in lecture and just kind of zoning out because they're bored versus an online synchronous, engaging breakout groups, questions, polls, all the stuff, videos, like, those are two different learning experiences. And one is very just like, they're not doing anything. And to make that overarching, sweeping, um, you know, generalization, it's it's wrong. And compare the other way, if you have a super boring online lecture with everybody's cameras off, and just the teachers talking at the students, Versus an engaging lab in school where pre-service teachers are peer teaching and learning from each other. So th- there's definitely so many different ways that it can be done. And, and I think the, the third layer on that is pandemic online teaching. You know, we all taught during <laughs> the pandemic under a lot of stress and with not a lot of training for many people. And th- they might have like a really bad taste in their mouth of like, oh, I never want to do that again. Mm -hmm. But there's so many different ways Mm -hmm. to be able to do that, and it's flipped learning, it's, you know, there's so many different ways. Um, So I'm wondering, the last theme of your study discusses uh, the needs that teacher educators and pre-service teachers have to develop a successful online environment. Can you talk about that? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think this is a really interesting conversation in terms of defining what we mean by being successful, right? Because, you know, some people, we, we normally tend to war when you when we are talking in, with, of teaching and learning with digital technologies, we use a lot the word effective use of digital technologies for teaching and learning, but we don't really know what that, that means. And so, and I think one of the things that I would say here, based on, on the review and our findings, it's just obviously, we, we know this already, but no one size fits all. And that, that is something that we need to consider. For me, and based on what we found, this is a matter of, of, of design, of pedagogical design. How are you going to design your, your program, your course? And, and what elements are you going to consider? What are your students going to do? I think that that is critical in terms of what are your students going to do? I think regardless of the mode of delivery, if it's online or it's, in a way, and even we are talking about online teaching and learning because we are using some kind of software, but our students are in a physical place. They are in the bedrooms, they are in the library, they are, I don't know, walking the dog, they are, wherever they are, in the park, and and we are whatever we are, so we are all in physical places too. So I think the... The whole notion of learning spaces <clears throat> is is an interesting one to to discuss too. But c- coming back again, I, I think in developing successful online teaching, uh, and I will put online in brackets, it's just that just kind of developing online, uh, sorry, successful teaching and learning experiences, and with a particular focus on, on this online environment because of of, of of this review, obviously. But you know this kind of may sound like, like science fiction or really, really utopic, but why don't we involve more people in the designing process, not just us, but at least us and our students at least. You know, I know from really interesting experiences there that are also including the instructional designers, the IT people, mm-hmm. all of them kind of in, in the same area. And I know initially that may sound like, oh my God, that that's kind of, really difficult to, to, to gather all those people j- just to talk about design. <clears throat> but I think that, that that would be really, really interesting. You know, there is a lot published already in terms of successful online and teaching and learning and all of them, all, all, all what we know have kind of really interesting common grounds in terms of assist. It has to be a systematic design process you know whether it's back war or not that's fine but it has to be a really it's, a, it's all about the design considering your 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 students and considering what kind of interaction are you gonna your activities are going to promote teacher a student or a student and a student uh, you know use a variety of assessments uh, provide those spaces in a small group for interaction from in up rooms which are normally really you know, but when you were talking in terms of how successful breakout rooms are, breakout rooms are, will only be successful if there is some, some, you know, really good prompts for the students to to discuss or if there are really, so there is some planning behind those breakout rooms, otherwise they won't work. Yeah. And so, I mean, that, that whole idea of, you know, how the, the whole designing process, I think, is a, a really interesting one. And then, my final point in relation to successful online teaching and learning would be: Okay, we we need to think that the, the use of technology is quite complex too. So it's not A plus B equals C, right? So sometimes it's more complicated than considering only the technology and the pedagogy that you are going to use. That we that is normally what we tend to do, and and we need to be ready to you know there's a number of variables there that are going to affect to whether yourself or your students are gonna have a, a good experience or not. And, and that's fine. We, we may be ready for, we need to be ready to to embrace some um, complexity and uncertainty because that it is a bit more complicated than we tend to think.
0: Yeah. And I, I've had some great professional development here uh, at, at George Mason about breakout rooms and how to how to keep them organized and, you know, The way I've done it before and the way I do it now is completely different. Like I have a Google Sheets that everybody is on. They all all the groups. Every breakout room has an individual Google Sheet has very specific prompts of what to do. You give roles to different people who are like the timekeeper, the mayor, the secretary, like to keep people on task. And so like if you pop in, let's say you're doing Zoom and you pop into a room Of course those students are going to get back on task and they're going to talk about what they just talked about but three seconds before they were talking about the football score and like hanging out and you you don't know what's happening Um, so the way those Google sheets on the side I can always have a screen open even though I'm not in the rooms if I don't see anything written I can type on their Google sheet and put a text box and say hey let's get back on task Uh, let's produce something and so then the conversation kind of gets poked away, uh, poked forward that way. Um, but there's just so many different ways to do it effectively. And I think depending on the trust you have for your students or the level you have for your, with your students, like you can't necessarily just assume that you grow out on breakout rooms and they're going to talk. there like like, I don't know, professors would talk in a breakout room for 15 minutes on Question number one, you know. Um, but so, as we kind of wrap this up, what are what are the implications for future research and practice that you you talk about in the article?
1: Yeah, no, I think I think we, we've mentioned a few of them already. I think we need to be ready to to. That, that that's a fact, you know. The, the the whole thing is moving too quickly and. Um, and I'm interested that we didn't even talk about AI and and in in this in, in this whole uh, almost one hour of conversation because it is it is it's, it seems to be the, the new elephant in the room in 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 online teacher education too. And so everything is moving too quickly. And I think we need to take our time in considering what we want to do and and how do we want to do what, what do we mean what do we what do the field need in terms of making making some progress. I think my, my two cents on, on this one, Risto, will be you know, we, we need to really understand the, the complexities in relation to online teaching and learning, and in particular in teacher education, because, uh, you know, we are educating teachers, right? And we are educating PE teachers in this case. And, and sometimes, if we are teaching them online, but well, then they, are, they need to go to teach. In person in the schools, so I think that would be a really interesting thing to say. Oh, look, they, they are we are te- they are learning to to be teachers in an online setting, whatever that means. But then they need to go and teach it
0: mm-hmm. in
1: person in the school. So I think that that would be something in relation to future practice uh, that that transfer of of knowledge in between the online or the in person. If if there is any transfer, I don't know. But I think that would be an area that definitely would be interesting to, to, to explore further.
2: Yeah. Yeah. and we also wrote um, near the end of the paper that it would be interesting to look at this idea of synchronous flexibility. You know, if it was possible to explore whether we could embed more options into our courses so that students could pre service teachers could perhaps choose to do some elements online, some elements in person, perhaps blended. And um, that would be very interesting to examine. And also, you know, most of the studies in the review where these online elements where pre-service teachers were going to be ending up teaching in person, in the school, in the gym, wherever. But there were a few that alluded to teaching pre-service teachers to teach online. And that's a whole other ballgame. Mm-hmm. That, that, you know, that's new to us. That might be a further area to examine and explore. We do hope to update this review in a few years' time. Um, I expect there will be an explosion of articles after after um, everyone's teaching during the pandemic. Um, so, you know, we've got 10 years here for this review, so hopefully we will update it um, in the future again. So if there are actually anyone listening to this who might be able to help in the future with including more languages in an update of this review, And do feel free
0: to get in touch with us. Yeah. And I think the uh, the teaching pre-service teachers how to teach online is really interesting because we have at Mason, uh, we have a technology course in our PE undergraduate major. It teaches teachers how to use uh, virtual learning environments. So like Moodle or Blackboard or whatever the one that people use. So they learn how to do that. They learn how to make videos. They learn how to utilize uh, Google Classroom. And we are moving towards teaching them about teaching how to teach online. Because um, for better or for worse, one of the biggest school districts here offers summer uh, online physical education. And a lot of our teachers pick that up because it's extra money. They can teach. It's done asynchronously. So they can teach from wherever they are on vacation and they get the extra money. And if they just left school, it's a it's a good way to kind of pick up some extra cash. And and most of those teachers have never been taught how to teach online. So uh, and and Antonio, your your conversation about AI, I think that's super interesting. Like the I think a lot of really high, high-level scholars in AI and, and computer science, they just made a public comment saying like AI needs to take a pause until we understand what's happening, that it's moving so fast. And you know just thinking about chat GPT, I've I followed up on a couple of different ones. Um and these are not like promos here. There's just like I don't know if you've seen consensus. Um it's a it's an AI that um you can ask it a simple research question. And say, what does research say on online physical education teaching? And it'll give you five to 10 top articles and give the main argument in each one. And it links to the abstract. And I mean, it's free for at least for now, but just like a quick way to get an overview. And I've seen like the first four, maybe five are really good. Then like, I did this, we, the ICEP had an activist uh, approach conversation uh, last week, so I, I, while I was doing that, I went on there and asked what does, or how has the activist approach been used in um, in physical education, and, you know, Lamb, Luguetti, Oliver, like, those articles came up, and then there's, like, a Dune McDonald 1996 article, right, which is not the activist approach wasn't the activist approach back then. So like you could see if you have a good filter, if you have the knowledge of understanding what you should be reading, Mm -hmm. great shortcut. The other one Mm -hmm. is chat PDF and you literally drag and drop a PDF into this. And then you can ask you basically becomes a chat bot with that PDF. And to think about how you can interact, I can drop your article as a PDF into there and ask it questions and mm. it answers questions based on what they're reading off the PDF. Like just research wise, how much potential we have to interact yeah. way, way better with this stuff is it's wild.
2: And even in the field of reviewing, you know, all these systematic reviews or various types of reviews, I know that AI is now being used to see if it could it could support that process mm. because there's so much research. In some fields more than others, there's so much research coming out all the time, it's nearly impossible to keep on top of it. So, using AI to systematically review uh, is another um, kind of new avenue for us.
1: Yeah, we need a lot, we need time to digest everything. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and, and we need time to think about you know if if it's really something that we may use to to facilitate our own students' learning and the uh, education of the teachers or not. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, thank you both for coming on. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate you uh, uh, sharing your work.
1: So, no, thank you for having.
0: Thank you. Absolutely. So the. Um, the link to the article is in the show notes. And again, I want to add, um, thank Alba Rodriguez for her wealth in producing the podcast. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody.